I asked him to bring the message to us, but uh, Roger is uh, one of the people that Bernard works with. He was focused a lot on uh, church planting, but he also pastored a church in White Rock. He's in the process of leaving, just like I am. <laughs> so I'd welcome you to come up here. I'm not going to hug you or shake your hand because that's against the law right now. So <laughs> the Lord bless your brother. Uh, normally, we have you stand when um, we read the scripture, but um, I'm going to be reading to verse 45. So uh, if you'd like to stand, you may, but if you'd like to stay sitting, that's also fine. So I'm going to be reading John 11, and it's from uh, this version is from the NIV. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped her feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. But then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, 
supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you, all, you all, always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And this is the word of God. Well, good morning. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. and I'm excited to be here. I'm humbled to be delivering the word of God. But uh, I, I've done that for a long time. It always overwhelms me to a degree that uh, that's what God has asked me to do. And uh, I, I, I come, I do it humbly uh, with a little bit of fear and trepidation. And I've, I've, I've realized over the years that one of the things God does to me is he drags my own life through the scriptures as I prepare to preach them that week. So it becomes very personal and even intimate to me. And I, I say this because I do get quite involved in what I say and quite passionate. So uh, a little bit of fair warning there. Uh, I chose this passage and I want to deliver this message in a way that I, actually I, I tell you quite a few stories about myself. Uh, in a, in a, it's sort of my way of beginning to introduce myself as well, uh, to let you know a little bit more of who I am and to share a little bit of my life, my experience with you. And... Uh, I love this passage. I love this story. It's, a, it's almost an overwhelming story. Um, if you read a, a little bit further in the story, you find that many people believed because of Lazarus's being raised back to life. And that's not really surprising, is it? That, that these people who know Lazarus buried him, and then days later see him raised by Jesus, they believe. That, that absolutely makes sense. Now, if you read just a little bit further from where we left off, you also find that the, the Jewish leaders are incensed by all of this, by what Jesus has done. And you know, they've already begun to make plans to kill Jesus, and now what they do is they begin to also make plans to kill Lazarus. The guy freshly raised from the dead, they're going to now include him 
in their death plans as well. And I guess to a degree that, in a warped kind of way, sort of makes sense as well. Because if you're trying to run a hate campaign against someone, i.e. Jesus, it's kind of hard to do when he goes around raising people from the dead. And even harder yet when that guy raised from the dead is attending dinner parties in Jerusalem. So because of all of this, they, they up their game against Jesus and now against Lazarus to try to put an end to him and to this movement and even to Lazarus. Well, this morning, as we look at this story, I, I really actually only want to focus on a very small piece of this story. I imagine you could do six or seven sermons from this story. I'm only doing one. And what I want to do is actually focus on Martha and Mary. So they are the focus. There they are. I believe this is from the movie The Passion. Uh, they are the focus of, of uh, my, my attention here. Um, and I want to particularly focus on their interaction with Jesus and their little conversation that is recorded in Scripture of Jesus before Lazarus is raised from the dead. Now, these two women, Mary and Martha, had become very, very close friends of Jesus over the years. They know him well. And I want to stress the word know. They know him well. They have heard much of his teaching, and they have actually witnessed a number of his miracles. They had so much hope, I can only assume, and, and you pick up the vibe from it here too, they had so much hope that Jesus would save their brother, that he would they save him from the thing, the, the sickness, the disease that had threatened his life, but alas, Jesus came too late, right? Or, or so they think, anyways. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus, he, he never arrives too late. He never does anything in an untimely manner, nor, harves, nor are any of his deeds done in vain. And that's why I wanted to read the beginning part of the story, too, because Jesus, Jesus intentionally waited. He intentionally held back. He intentionally delayed so that Lazarus would die before he got there. You see, his intention was to raise Lazarus from the dead in order to, because he had a purpose. It was in order to display the glory of God and to teach a, a really powerful lesson to his closest friends and to us too, as this story is recorded in Scripture. And, and the lesson that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples in the raising of Lazarus is the difference between what these people know, right? The difference between what they know about Jesus or what they think they know about who he is and what he does. Jesus wants to teach them the difference between that and how much they actually believe in what they know about Jesus. That's the lesson. That's the core teaching here. You know, so, so it's what they know versus how much they believe and actually trust in what they know. To what extent are they willing to believe in, in, not about, but in this Jesus who they know so much about? What Jesus is concerned with here, with Martha and with Mary, with the rest of the Jews that are there, and with us, what Jesus is concerned with is not their theology. It's not just their doctrine and what they know about him. It's, it's their faith and, and, and how much and to what extent 
They believe upon him, right? How much do they believe in that stuff that they know about? So the obvious question for us here today, the obvious application in this passage for us, is how much do we believe in the stuff that we know about our faith? Right? So we're trying to make that transition, that shift from what we know to what we believe. So let's start by looking at Martha. Martha says to Jesus when he finally arrives, days late, she says, oh Lord, if, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I know that, right? That's what Martha knows. That's the knowledge that she contains in her head. And then she goes on to affirm that she also knows that God will even still give Jesus what he asks. She says, but I know that even now, Martha says, God will give you, right? Even with Lazarus dead, God will give you whatever you ask. Martha says that she knows that. It's like, wow, Martha knows a lot. She's got a lot of knowledge and and fairly impressive knowledge stored up in her head. Her theology and doctrine are good. So, So Jesus says to Martha, and it's almost like Jesus is taking her up on her knowledge, and he says, Martha, your brother will rise again. And and Martha again responds with more knowledge, with more doctrine. She says, oh yes, I know, he will rise again at the resurrection in the last day. She says, I know that, I learned that in Sunday school. I've got that stored up in my head. That's part of my doctrine, I understand. And that's her response, it's more knowledge. You see, even though she seems to know that Jesus could raise him now, even though she seems to know that God will give Jesus whatever he asks for even now, she knows it, yet she can't quite believe upon it at this particular moment. She can't quite believe in the Jesus who's speaking to her at this point in time. And you know, I think And I have to say for myself, that's not an unfamiliar reality for me as well. And probably for most, if not all of us, that our knowledge doesn't quite always, you know, transfer to our belief and our actual actions as it plays out in our lives. So Jesus goes on to tell her in absolute terms, It's like now he gets right down to it and he says to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he he lays it all right in the line. He says, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? It's like he's saying, Martha, I I know that you know it. I know that that's part of your theory, but do you believe it in your very heart? And for a moment, it seems that Martha actually comes through and makes quite an amazing confession. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. And then she goes on even farther. It's like her, 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 her belief extends even farther for a moment. She says, I believe that you are the Christ. Right? That's the Messiah. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. For a moment, she comes through with seemingly this amazing level of faith to be able to make such a confession. 
I mean, even the disciples at this point in time were struggling with exactly that. Who exactly is Jesus and how much is he for sure the Messiah? But Martha seems to just grasp it right there. But we'll see that when the moment of truth comes, Martha's faith, which seems to be kind of peaking right now, it's going to falter. It's going to falter. And, and when Jesus asks for the tomb to be opened, you know, so that he can go ahead and raise Lazarus from the dead, Martha's faith falters and she protests. And she says, oh Lord, no, it's been four days and the body will smell. It's like when it comes right down to it, she can't bear it. It seems, it seems that the oppressive stench of death is sort of beaten down her faith in spite of what she knows, in spite of what her theology says, in spite of the hope that she wants to have in her knowledge and her doctrine. And when it comes to Mary, she's really not any different. When Mary comes to Jesus, she says the very same thing to him, actually. It's the very same thing that Martha said. She says, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And then Mary goes into weeping and mourning. And all these other Jews have come out with her to, to meet Jesus, and they're all weeping and mourning. And I don't know if you've ever seen footage of like a, a Jewish or Palestinian funeral and the wailing and the weeping that goes on. This is intense stuff. And you get the picture that that's kind of what they launch into, this weeping and wailing. And Mary is weeping. And you can almost sense that there's really no hope for resurrection. In spite of what they know about Jesus. Even in spite of what Jesus says. And then we're told that Jesus is deeply moved, right? Troubled. One, one version says distressed, right? He's troubled, he's distressed. And what is he troubled and distressed at? But, but the loss of hope and the loss of faith, and I think that even more so perhaps he's troubled and he's distressed at death itself. At death itself. The way that this curse of death has such an ability to hurt and to dishearten and to steal faith and hope from us. And in this troubled and distressed moment, Jesus too weeps. Not for Lazarus. Because he knows Lazarus is going to be walking around amongst them in, in just a few moments. He weeps for Mary and for Martha and for the other Jews who, who have seen so much but struggle to believe, who've heard so much and who know so much but still struggle to actually believe in the face of of the mortality and the suffering and the death that this world throws at us like so many buckets full of despair and doubt. There's a book that I was reading fairly recently that's uh, written by uh, an anthropologist named Erst Becker. And the book is called The Denial of Death. And in that book he writes, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. And it's true. It's true. It, it is our greatest fear, death itself. Suffering, pain, and most of all, death can really 
push our sense of hope. And even for us as believers, it can push our very faith. The fear of death, it tries. I think it actually tries. And I suppose that's why it's called a curse. It tries to threaten us and to crush our confidence and our hope, even in the things that we know. Even in the doctrines that we hold. So, Jesus goes to the tomb (laughs) and to bring glory to the Father and to show that he is, in fact, now, here and now, the resurrection and the life, not just at some future date, but at that moment, he is the resurrection and the life. And to help Mary, and to help Martha, and to help the others, and to help us with our belief, he goes to that tomb, he calls forth Lazarus, and raises him back to life. Got a picture of the scene here uh, by the French uh, French painter Jean Jonet. Uh, I I love these paintings. Um, we're just going to leave that picture up. Well, actually, we're going to we're going to go through a few pictures fairly quickly now. I want to shift just a little bit here and actually tell you a few stories. Um, I have a few pictures that are going to go along with the stories. But they're pictures from, or stories from my life. Um, many of them are stories about death and about fear and about doubting and about how God answered those things in life for me um, and for some others. So let's go to the first picture. It's the Grand Canyon. And that's my wife standing there. And she is actually standing at a point in the Grand Canyon. We, we hike for several hours along the rim of the Grand Canyon. There's no fences there, you know. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? There are no fences, like none. And uh, there's signs everywhere saying that, like, how many people die there every year, and it's shocking how many do, but there's no fences. And uh, my wife is standing at a point in the Grand Canyon that is known as the Abyss. And where she is standing, straight down below her, is about a one-mile drop. The longest drop in the Grand Canyon, hence the name the Abyss. Look at how close she's standing to the edge. It's insane. And she had no fear whatsoever. I was watching her do this sweating. I was standing on the... Well, I'm standing where the picture's being taken. That's where I'm standing. A good ways back from the edge. And I got her to come back finally. And she had no problem at all. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a rock over the edge. Just so I could tell people I throw a rock a whole mile, right? And uh, I kind of, I grabbed the rock. It wasn't a really big rock. And I took a few steps towards the edge. And my knees just started quaking. And I wanted to throw the rock. And I kind of threw it. I kind of did one of these, you know? And as I did it, I fell backwards on my backside. And it was almost like I had this, this, this irrational sense that as I threw the rock, the momentum of the throw was going to suck me right over the edge of the cliff and I would fall to my death. Now here's the thing. I knew that I had plenty of room. My head, it knew that I had plenty of room and that that wasn't going to happen. My feet and my legs knew that I could stand there because I wasn't getting nearly as close as her and that I could balance myself there. That wasn't a problem. I knew it intellectually, rationally. But 
the fear of death undid everything that I knew in my head. And I couldn't do it. I, I, I lamely tossed my rock, fell backwards, and had to get away from that edge. And I didn't get nearly as close as her. Next picture. Oh, how about that? Has anybody here bungee jumped? All right, I have, I have, I, not recently. I did it a lot, quite a while ago uh, in, my, in my 30s, my late 30s. We did it for a uh, friend of mine who was getting married. He, he, he paid for and brought all of his groomsmen out to the Nanaimo bungee zone. And we went bungee jumping for the day. We spent the whole day doing that, and it was, it was a lot of fun. One of the people that was there also was my brother. Now, my brother, he is the biggest, strongest, bravest, and boldest of all of us. He was both a provincial and a national wrestling champion, and uh, he was excited to do this. When we got to the bungee zone, we all went one at a time, and he was kind of he was a little quite nervous. And uh, when it got to his turn, he strapped up. You know how they got your... This guy's got it around his waist, but at the bungee zone, they, they wrap, put the strap around your ankles. So he got all strapped up, and he stood at the edge of that little gangplank, and he stood there, and he stood there, and he stood there for like 15 minutes, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it, and he backed off. Another guy went, and after that, they strapped him up again, and he stood there, and he stood there, and he couldn't do it, and he backed off. And then a third time, they strapped him up, and he stood there, and he stood there, and he couldn't do it. And you know what? He knew. He knew that those cords would hold him. He watched us all do it. He knew that it was safe. He knew that it would probably even be fun if he did it. And he really wanted to do it, but he could not do it. Because of fear. Because of this, this fear that had somehow crept into his head and told him that he might die if he did this. He froze. He froze in the face of fear. And even our belief in the things that we know can freeze in the face of fear. Our very faith itself can freeze in the face of fear, even though we know, even though we know. Next picture. I picked this picture just to symbolize death itself. Um, so I've been a pastor for 27 years, and... Not too long ago, someone asked me, you know, what's the hardest thing that you've had to do as a pastor? And you know what? Funerals. Facing death with and on behalf of people. That's it. That's the hardest thing I think that most pastors have to do. Standing in the face of death in hope. It's hard. Death is a significant foe. It really is. Um, it was especially hard for me early on, in my early years of pastoring. And you know, I think the evil one knew it. And if he was going to take me out of being a pastor, he was going to do it in, in the first few years. And he overwhelmed me with funerals and death. The first four years that I was a pastor, I was called back from vacation on three of those four years. Right? And 
I mean, this is planting a church in an intense sort of activity, working long and intense and emotionally filled hours. You get your vacation, and man, you need it. You need it. And on the first four years, three of those years, I got a call while I was on vacation to come back, please, because there's been a death. And on two of those occasions, the deaths were infants, brand newly born babies. And I had to come back and try to speak hope and God's goodness into the lives of these parents who had lost infants. It was overwhelming. And I have found over the years that that it's especially hard when death sneaks up on you, when it comes very unexpected. It's a little bit different when I have some leeway knowing that it's kind of coming. I can brace myself. I can bolster myself up in God. I can focus on the truth. (laughs) I can read it. I can pray into it. I can do all those things and it strengthens me. But when it comes very unannounced and very unawares, it can knock you flat. About, probably about, it was probably about 10 years after those first four years, I was called to the hospital, uh, Peace Arts Hospital in White Rock. They have this list of all the pastors in the community, but they, they list them by name of church, by, by um, um, denomination, actually. And whenever someone at the hospital wants someone to come and visit them, they just start at the top of the list and start working their way through. So, you know, the Anglicans always get the first calls. There's two Anglican churches. They're the A's, so they get the first calls. And when they can't answer them, they're too busy or they're not around or whatever, then they go on to the B's. And the Baptists get called second. And because of that, and I was at the top of the Baptist list for whatever reason, I got a lot of calls. The Anglicans didn't seem to be pulling their weight there, and I would get the calls. So I would get the calls, and I, I got quite a few of these. And on this particular day, it was to come to the hospital. I, I was, they just, all they said was, there's a family there. They'd like a pastoral visit. Could you do it? It's like, okay, I'll be there in 30 minutes. I had no idea what the circumstances were. I went. I walked into the hospital room to visit someone who I assumed was sick with their family there. And I walked into the room about two minutes after this man died. And the entire family was there just gripped in fear and grief. And a couple of them gripped in anger. And their anger was pretty clearly focused against God, and since I was the closest representative in that room who suddenly walked into to God, they railed on me. And I was caught so unawares. So unawares. And man, it just, it was hard it struck deep. It hurt. And, and I'm telling you, death beat hard on me that day. And in turn, I drove away from the hospital just defeated. And from the hospital, I drove down the, the bluff to the waterfront. And it was a winter day, and it was kind of dark. There wasn't very many people there. I parked my car in front of the water. I stared out into the water, and then I railed against God. I was so frustrated. I was so defeated. I was so done. And I told God, this is too much. This is just too much. I can't do this anymore. And I resigned. And God did not accept my resignation. 
I came to realize, and I even knew when it was happening, but I didn't like it, that God uses these times to teach us and actually, actually to deepen our faith, even when it falters. You realize that's usually what he's doing? He's he's working to deepen your faith even when it falters. And I learned that God was teaching me. God was teaching me exactly this, that if I try to face situations like this to any degree in my own strength or wisdom or ability or go into these sorts of situations armed just with what I know about Jesus, I'm done. I'm doomed. I won't make it. I've got to go into these circumstances, not just with what I know about Jesus, but actually standing upon, resting upon, relying up on and in Jesus. And what he says and who he is and the truth and the reality that he is the resurrection and the life. I have a friend. This is my next story. I I have a friend who worked at a recovery house in White Rock, in, in South Surrey. And I'd gotten to know him quite well, and he was kind of the, the on-site sort of resident kind of manager of, of the recovery house. And there was a young man in the recovery house, usually about 20 to 30 guys there, and there was a young man in the re- recovery house that was very distressed, very disturbed, very in trouble. He'd been there for a couple of days, and he couldn't, he couldn't stand it, and he left. And he came back later that night, the night that he left, with a length of rope, He slung it over a tree in the backyard of the recovery house and he hung himself. I don't know how much later it was after that that someone found him, but it was my friend who found him. And he found this guy hanging there and he just kind of went into auto mode. And he lifted the body, he had it cut down, and he immediately started doing mouth to mouth. And for 20 minutes, he did what he should do until the emergency personnel got there. He did mouth-to-mouth to this young man. And he even told me that he knew that he was doing this to a corpse. And the effect of having done that for about 20 minutes just left an incredible imprint on him. And he phoned me up a couple days later, and he says, I need help. And he explained to me how he's not been able to sleep. The second he starts to fall asleep, he has dreams of, of him doing mouth-to-mouth on this dead body. And he says, I have this feeling that with my lips touching his lips, that death crept right into my mouth and deep into my being. And he says, I can't shake that thought. I can't shake that feeling. And... I'm losing it. I'm losing it. And he said, I need you to help me. And I said, well, we have to pray. And he says, I know. He says, I know. He says, pray for me. And I told him that what we have to do in this prayer is actually activate what you know into faith. So we began to pray. We prayed for a significant period of time. It was very intense And he gave himself over to God yet again. And and we prayed for this resurrection power to to just fill him. And we actually quoted these words of Jesus that are right here, that I am the resurrection, I am the life. 
He who believes what? What did it say? He who believes in me. Not just about me. In me. In me. Will live even though he dies. And whoever, whoever, in believing again in me, will never die. And then at the end of it, I said that to him. I said, I said do you believe this? And, and in absolute tears and sobs, he he shouted out, yes. And, and he said, instantly, like instantly, the fear left him. And that sense of death having crept into him was just gone. And he was able to sleep again. And obviously that knowledge had transferred into faith. My last story is of myself when I was five years old. When I was five years old, I grew up on a farm. How many of you grew up on a farm? Yeah, okay, yeah. And you know, one of the things that happens when you're a child growing up on a farm is you become reasonably familiar with death. Because we had like 100 cows and all kinds of other animals, and, and they have much shorter lifespans than humans. So you see things die quite a bit, even as a kid. And I remember not thinking much of it, that these animals, these cows, these whatever would die. And then one day... And I was only five years old, and it's one of my enduring memories from, from that age, one of my very few. I, I, I saw a young calf that had died. And for the very first time, it had dawned upon me that young things can die too. I'd never thought about that before. It had never occurred to me before. And then the, the shoe dropped, the second shoe dropped, and I realized that I too could die. And I was literally gripped by fear. And I went and I told my mom. And it just so happened that at that time we were reading a children's version. She was reading it to me. I wasn't reading it. She was reading to me a children's version of Pilgrim's Progress. A very well done children's version with, with amazing pictures. And, and we were near the end of the story. And she sat me down and she said, let's finish the story. And, and if you've read the story, you know what happens. The story ends with, with Christian <laughs> dying. And in the allegory of Pilgrim's Progress, death is symbolized as a river. It is, in fact, called the river of death. And Pilgrim is crossing the river of death. And as he gets deeper and deeper and deeper into the water, and it's getting up to his chin and his nose, and it's starting to overwhelm him, he just becomes filled with fear. Filled with fear. And I'm listening to the story just... I. I can't wait for the next words to come because I'm right there with them. And then as he's about to go under, it's like something seizes his attention on the other shore. It's not that he even sees it. It's like it sees, his, it, it sees him and grabs a hold of his own sight and holds him. And it's Jesus standing on the other shore. And he's locked onto Jesus as he goes under and into death. And then immediately is emerged on the other side of the shore beside Jesus. And I read that story, or my mom read that story to me, and then she said to me, and I was so relieved <laughs> at how it ended, and then she said to me after that, she says, do you want to keep your eyes on Jesus and trust him? Not just know about him, but actually trust in him so you don't have to be afraid of death. And I just jumped on that and said, absolutely. And we prayed. And she prayed for me that I would believe in him. And I asked 
him to be my savior, and I gave my life to him, and immediately my fear was gone. Immediately my fear was gone. There is a saying. Uh, I actually looked up because I've heard the saying many times, and I, I never knew where it came from. And it's apparently a Sioux Indian saying, uh, if the research that I read online was correct. And it goes like this. You've probably heard it too. The longest journey you will make in your life is from your head to your heart. Yeah. Right? It's the journey from knowing something, from just knowing something, knowing about something, or even just knowing that something is true to the conviction of believing it and actually trusting and wholly resting and leaning upon it. That, that is the longest journey you will make in your life, right? That, that journey from your head to your heart with your own life, right? Head to heart. Moving Jesus from the head to the heart. You know what that really is? From the intellect, from knowledge to actually the core of our being. You know what that journey is? That is actually the journey of discipleship. That's what it is. That's the whole target and goal of what discipleship is all about, is making that very journey. It's the process of maturing and growing in faith. And it is something that in the end, we find out and we come to realize that God actually works in us and through us and with us all through the ups and the downs, the joys, and the trials of life as we experience them with Jesus. There is some faltering and stumbling along the way. Maybe even fear and doubt you know, enter at points in time along the way. That's normal. In fact, I would say it's more than normal. I would say that it's even necessary to be tried and to be tested and to practice faith and to learn how exactly to lean upon it, and that it actually works. Dostoevsky, the Russian author, uh, he writes this. Well, he was in a Siberian concentration camp for four years. A Christian, incredible Christian man. And in the Siberian concentration camp, he writes later on that uh, this place where he experienced so much fear, so much fear, and watched so much death, he says, it is there, actually, where Jesus and his words finally moved from my head to my heart. <laughs> That's where it happened. You see, Jesus uses those difficult experiences to help complete that process. This is actually a quote by John Piper that's up there behind me. And he says that God will drive your faith like a stake from your head to your heart, if he must. And usually he must. That's usually the case with us. Be it a Siberian concentration camp, the, the, the fear of death of a five-year-old child, or the taste of death 
on your lips. Or some virus that is threatening our communities. Or change that we're really uncomfortable with. Or whatever personal conflict or confrontation we might be going through or challenge. Or anything else. Actually, what it is is anything else that is bigger than us. And we must, therefore, begin to depend upon our Lord. Because we cannot handle it ourselves. When we're driven to, right? Those circumstances in our life where we are driven to put our actual faith in and upon Jesus and his word. That is so often where we grow more and more to have our faith move from our heads to our hearts. Moving from merely knowing about Jesus to actually standing upon who he is and what he says. His very words, his very person. Let's go to that last verse, that last passage. I'm going to close with this. Peter writes this. First Peter. He really, he really brings it home for us. He summarizes this whole message right here. He says to his, his readers, he says, Let us give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he gave us new life. Right? He gave us new life by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. This fills us with a living hope, right? And so we look forward to possessing the rich blessing that God has kept for his people. He keeps them for you in heaven, right? That's our ultimate hope. He keeps them for you in heaven where they cannot decay or spoil or fade away. They are for you who through faith are kept by God's power for the salvation which is ready to be revealed at the end time. Be glad about this, even though it may be necessary for you to be sad for a while. <laughs> Hard times for a while. Challenges and difficulties for a while. Because of the many kinds of trials you may suffer, right? That's going to happen. Their purpose of the trials and the sufferings, the challenges, the fears, the whatever, their purpose is to prove that your faith is genuine. In fact, not only will they prove that your faith is genuine, they will actually make your faith genuine. They'll be part of what makes your faith genuine. I mean, even gold which can be destroyed, is tested and purified. It needs to be tested and purified in order to be purified. <laughs> Just like we need to be tested in order to have our faith become genuine. Right? And so it is with your faith, which is much more precious than gold. It must also be tested so that, right? So that it may endure. Right? So that it may endure. Then you will receive praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed. Amen? We may be tested a bit in our coming days. There's a purpose behind it. God's got a plan for it. Right? It's to make our faith more genuine. More genuine, more strong, more powerful, more real. To purify us so that our faith will, in fact, endure all the way to the end. He's going to drive that faith.
faith from our head to our heart like a stake. But he's going to also love us in the process. Be gracious to us in the process. And even gentle to us in the process. But he's going to do it so that we will endure. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Let's pray. Lord, we stand upon your goodness. We stand upon your truth. You are holy and righteous and good. (laughs) You care for us. You love us. You guide us. You protect us. Sometimes we hardly know where we're going or what's coming. Sometimes we face circumstances that we don't see the ends to. And then we truly have to stand in faith. Sometimes things look bad and chaotic and out of control. And we're tempted to believe maybe you're not there anymore. But it's those times when we're being tested. It's those times when we're being pushed beyond ourselves. So that we must, so that we must test and approve our faith. So God, as we head into some of those times, some of those uncertainties, here is a body, and in our, in our world, as a society, Lord, help us to stand upon your words. Help us to stand upon your faith. Help us to take all those things that we know about you and actually stand upon them solidly and securely. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. God bless you.